My name is Rick Cleffel, and welcome to the show. Today we're talking with author Dan Simmons. His first published story, The River Sticks Runs Upstream, won the Rod Serling Memorial Award in 1982. His first novel, Song of Collie, won the first World Fantasy Award. His next novel, Carrying Comfort, won the Bram Stoker Award. His first science fiction novel, Hyperion, won the Hugo Award. His novel of historical suspense, The Crook Factory, based on Ernest Hemingway's U.S. spy ring in Cuba, was optioned for a movie. His latest novel is Ilium, a science fictional reimagination of the Iliad. Welcome to Fine Print, Dan. Thank you, Rick. Tell us how you brought yourself to write and submit your first short story to Rod Serling's Twilight Zone magazine back in 1982. Oh, my. That's, I'm afraid that it's an epic tale. Essentially, I'd given up thinking about writing for publication. I'd sent some science fiction and other stories off, and the magazines, three of them accepted them. All three magazines disappeared before they could publish or pay, including the old Galaxy magazine. So I gave up, and I went to uh, decided since I wasn't going to try to write for publication, I'd go to a writer's workshop. And uh, because they had some authors there that I wanted to hear, like Joanne Greenberg and George R. R. Martin and a fellow named Harlan Ellison. And uh, you had to pay your way in, not only with money, but at least have a story in case anybody wanted to workshop one. So I had this little short story that I didn't care if anybody read. I just wanted to hear the authors speak. But one of the authors was Harlan Ellison. Out of a stack of about 80 stories, he chose mine. And he had just eviscerated about 11 amateur authors in a row. But he thought mine had some quality. And he essentially told me if I didn't try to write for publication, he was going to rip my face off. <laughs> so I submitted the thing to a national short story contest by the magazine. They thought they'd get up to 3,000 entries. And in fact, they got over 15,000 stories. Wow. Yeah, they were hiring readers off the street, homeless people to read. <laughs> and so I tied for first place, and a career began. Well, that was a fantastic career. And I subscribed to the Twilight Zone magazine at the time and really enjoyed the story. Well, thank you very much. Your first novel, Song of Collie, had the feel of science fiction, horror, mystery, and mainstream literary fiction, all in one novel. That's a path you've really ardently pursued since, isn't it? It's a, what I've ardently pursued is the right to go down as many paths as I want. <laughs> so I, I appreciate the fact that you think all those elements were in that first, uh, the first stories and novel, uh, and what I do is that I end up in different genres, but that there's a certain element of strangeness not in weirdness, but in strangeness, which I like, which Harold Bloom says is the quality to all fine literature, whether it's Hamlet or Goethe, strangeness, or Emily Dickinson. And it's funny how it can pop up in different genres. Now, you write an almost round-robin style these days of mysteries, your novels Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and the forthcoming Hard as Nails, horror, as in your a recent A Winter Haunting, and science fiction, as in Ilium. How do you approach the genre fiction you write and manage to make it stand as independent in, as literature? Well, I don't know what literature is. I was just asking a young man today who came to a reading of mine. He wants to only produce literature. But I said, how do you separate that from quality good writing? And I love good writing. And that, to me, is literature. Literature, of course, is supposed to survive across different generations. But all I can do is bring the best possible writing I can to everything I try to do. And then I do not recommend trying to write across genres to aspiring writers out there because, you know, the idea is to build up a readership. And some people don't want to follow you to different types of books. But as long as that's what you want to do, go for it. Now, do you do it to, to uh, create a readership? How do you create a readership across all these genres? It's very hard, actually, because genre, genre readership, say people who read primarily mystery, they can't be fooled. You can't go slumming. The same is true of speculative fiction, science fiction. 
they know who the giants of their genre are. They know what the best quality their genre can produce is. And when somebody bops in from the outside and says, here's my little knockoff book, you know, love it, uh, they reject it immediately, and good for them. I'm part of that readership. I enjoy several of these genres, too. And I know the quality that's out there. So all I can do is do the best writing I can and hope I find some new readers. Now, do you move from genre to genre to help maintain the joy of writing fiction? I guess so. I'm still, it's still a form of play with me, even though I've been a full-time professional writer uh, now for 16 years and, and published for over 20. It's still, I know it's the same thing I was doing in the backyard as a little kid playing with the toy soldiers and <laughs> with the imagination. But I also say I grew up in the Midwest, and something you learn there is to rotate the crops. You don't grow the same crop every year or, you, or the soil goes fallow. Now, in this list of genre fiction, one genre is actually notably absent, and that's fantasy. Why is that? How did you manage to escape the curse of J.R.R. Tolkien? Hey, my first novel won the World Fantasy Award. (laughs) They didn't know it wasn't fantasy. (laughs) I think Tolkien's the reason I haven't tried fantasy, because um, there are a lot of elements of modern fantasy I I find very formulaic, and I don't want to try to crack out of that formula. And if you go back to epic fantasy, you're taking on one person, Tolkien. It's as if there's only been one giant science fiction writer in the history of science fiction, and I don't know who it would be, but you'd have to take him on. And so I'm not sure what to do. If I ever do write fantasy, it'll be a bit like uh, Jack Vance, if anybody knows that writer. He wrote some wonderful fantasy in a book called The Dying Earth. Oh, yeah, I love those novels. Filled with strangeness. Filled with strangeness, too, indeed. Recently, Michael Chabon edited an issue of Dave Dave Edgar's McSweeney's magazine called Thrilling Tales, wherein he talked about his discovery that plotted fiction and genre fiction could be literature in his introduction. It really incensed some of the science fiction world, just the introduction itself. There There was an editorial in Science Fiction Weekly, the online magazine. How did you feel about that? I am... I'm too old to get outraged. Somebody discovers that science fiction can be quality about every six months, <laughs> and it's always a huge discovery to publishers and the New York Times and everybody else. You know, or a writer like Margaret Atwood will come in and find out, well, my, my, I can use science fiction tropes and protocols to tell a story of a dystopian feminist, anti-feminist future. And uh, it's like, well, welcome to the club. People have been doing this for over 120 years. And calling it literature, as in Frankenstein, In many ways, serious literary fiction has already been supplanted by quality genre fiction, hasn't it? Serious fiction? I don't know if it's been supplanted. I like to think of it as um, just some serious taking itself, serious fiction that that aspires to literature upon publication, which is impossible, has just bogged down from its own inertia. John Updike talked about, he wrote about, spending years getting small enough and inky enough to appear in The New Yorker. (laughs) And so now to be serious, you have to be very small and very inky, which is fine. I happen to love Henry James. But there's also the heritage of Robert Louis Stevenson, which is not small and inky, but large and bright with a, a, a broad palette of colors. So yes, you're right. It's been flanked. It's been just driven around. And one of the main times that was done was the Hyperion Cantos, published in two books, Hyperion and The Fall of Hyperion. It's clearly one of the most important science fiction novels of the last century, and very possibly one of the most important novels. In it, you recreate the Canterbury Tales, John Keats, and so much more using the tropes of science fiction. For all the science fictional elements, it's much more of a literary novel than it is a science fiction novel. 
how and why did you manage to appropriate the memes of science fiction and turn them to those literary ends? I was celebrating science fiction. The, I was trained as an English major and trained, you know, to take literature seriously. You can't recreate the Canterbury Tales, but what you can really do is celebrate it and look at it in a new way and, you know, enter into some of the play that was there in the Canterbury Tales, not just the structure, but the feeling of it. And I was also coming back to reading science fiction after almost 14 years away from it. So I was celebrating the new writers I was discovering, including cyberpunk. So, again, it was, it was a, a form of sheer celebration at the freedom of working within this wonderful genre that allows you such a large scope and such a I've, I've discovered in the last 15 years that science fiction is very close to poetry they demand many of the same things from the reader it's always a collaborative venture but readers have to work hard in the way you do when you read quality poetry when you read quality sf tell us a little bit more about this parallel between the two how do they work is it creating the world translating the language I, you know, Hemingway said that uh, any fiction is like an iceberg, that seven-eighths of it is underwater. With science fiction and poetry, I think it's difficult in a way, and strange in a way, because about 98% of it's underwater. When you read a poem, you have to pay great attention to the language. It is, it is a language dance. I did research as an educator years ago, finding that even newborn infants danced language and they listen to their parents speaking to each other, not even to the child, and their bodies are wiggling in response to the sound of human language. They're trying to take part in a conversation when they're 10 days old. It's amazing. And poetry is a continuation, I think, of that language dance. In science fiction, there's tremendous linguistic invention. There's tremend- You have to pay attention to small details because much is being created. The names of plants, animals, worlds, new societies... And the quality of the words is very important. And science fiction often breaks down, uh, to me, almost all movie and TV science fiction because they haven't paid attention to the language. Because language evolves both slowly, like names, you know. The name David has been around for thousands of years. So it's not going to disappear in a hundred years. But other things change very quickly in our language. And it reflects our culture. So it's so much fun doing that language dance in science fiction And I think some of the readership responds like readers of good poetry. We're talking with Dan Simmons here. Your first works came out in the 1980s, and to a certain extent, you were lumped with some of the rising horror stars of the 1980s. But the 1980s horror boom went bust. Of course, by that time, you were already better known for your science fiction. Could you talk about what happens when a genre runneth over? Yeah, it's Gresham's Law, which is that bad money drives out good. And I was there, I was considered a horror author in in the 1980s because my best-known book at the time was marketed as horror. And I saw firsthand, up close and personal, some of the very young editors who destroyed the entire marketing genre. They published everything. They edited poorly. They had, some of the houses had 30, 40 titles a month. Anybody who wanted to publish in horror seemed to be invited into the party. And, of course, it was very hard to find anything of quality. And once again, people who grew up reading things like uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and some of the better horror of the 19th century and early 20th century knew that garbage was being shoveled at them and weren't going to spend the time to sort through all these thousands of bad titles and the werewolf anthologies and the 500th vampire novel. So all of a sudden you go in a bookstore, there's no horror section anymore. But you know the neat thing, just one thing it's coming back because 
once once it gets overgrazed like that, and once it disappears, suddenly there are these writers that do something original and new, and then the readership comes back. A lot of uh, more writers who might be considered mainstream are approaching horror. I know I just finished a novel by Chuck Palahniuk called Diary that I thought was a fantastic horror novel, and he was harking back to the Ira Levin. That's a nice thing. Once a genre just destroys itself and bulldozes <laughs> itself under, then serious writers may return, but they are good writers. And also another nice thing is uh, writers like Tanana Reeve Du, who I met when she was just getting started, are writing from an African-American perspective. They're bringing in different cultural, ethnic folk tales and so forth and reinvigorating horror completely uh, just by starting from their own perspective. Now, in a speech you made in 1991, you challenged genre fiction writers to tear down the walls between genre fiction and mainstream literary fiction. That's happened at this point just by the virtue of the popularity of science fiction, hasn't it? I I don't know. I don't know. I would like to think so, but uh, still the bestsellers are Michael Crichton's swarm dealing with nanotechnology rather than some brilliant piece of writing like Greg Bear's uh, Blood Music. Greg sells a lot of books, but I think the barriers are still there. To me, I the, the part of that challenge I gave, when, when was it, 1991? 91. Yeah, I said, I, I did my best Kennedy imitation, like the Apollo program, you know, in this decade, we'll send a man to the moon and return him. I said, we'll send a, a genre science fiction writer to mainstream bestsellerdom and return him to Earth. <laughs> and uh, I didn't think anybody was listening. But uh, what I would like to see is simply someone from inside the field create something so compelling that it doesn't take a Margaret Atwood or a Michael Crichton from outside the genre, not just to have a bestseller, but to have something treated seriously by the entire literary community. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. But uh, So the Berlin Wall is still there, but the towers aren't being guarded by genre people. There's, somebody's protecting something. <laughs> now, in Publishers Weekly, Judith Rosen reported that science fiction and fantasy represent nearly 10% of all trade books sold. But Jane Johnson, the publisher of... HarperCollins' genre line Voyager has said that she wants to split SF from fantasy in terms of how they are sold. It's on the basis of some market research that said 80% of mainstream book buyers bought a fantasy novel in the last year. She wants to make the books look more like mainstream historical fiction and get them racked in the shops under fiction. The editor over at Bantam Spectra, Ann Grohl, said, we're going to kill science fiction if we separate fantasy. SF is struggling right now. It's much harder to sell. Well, that's true, because we don't have a Harry Potter in SF. That's what, you know, that 80% about a fantasy novel, you know the name of it, the title, don't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're not going out getting Jack Vance's Dying Earth. No. We've got these little teenage wizards that are controlling the world right now. That's all the publishers want to publish, to tell you the truth. I think SF will survive, though. How do you feel about where your books are shelved in the bookstores? Do you care? I do, down deep. Uh, sometimes I ask for them to move them around, but it's mostly because I, I hate people to miss the chance of finding something. I, I wrote a book, a historical novel about Ernest Hemingway called The Crook Factory. I'm quite proud of it. It follows his summer of 1942 when he was running an espionage group in Cuba that he called The Crook Factory. It took me seven years to research it. I think it's a ripping yarn, also a good piece of writing. But if it's shelved in science fiction, <laughs> and, and which it is, they won't find it. It is a ripping yarn. It's one of my favorites. Thank you. Now, tell us about Ilium. What brought you all the way to the great stories of ancient Greece and made you want to recreate them on Mars? I don't think you can recreate the Iliad, but what you can do is take all those same toys out of the box and play with them again. <laughs> and uh, 
It actually was an article in 1993 in the New Yorker by David Demby called Does Homer Have Legs? Where the man is my age, he was in his late 40s then, uh, and he went back to Columbia University where he was an undergraduate, and he took two of the same courses, CC, Contemporary Civilization, Lit Hum, Literature Humanities. And uh, as a freshman in 1966, he crashed headfirst into the Iliad. And as a middle-aged man, right, who did film reviews for the New Yorkers and stuff, he retook the course and crashed headfirst into the Iliad. <laughs> I can imagine that myself. It is. It's a strange, off-putting, you know, it's all Western literature supposed to flow from the Iliad. But few people can stomach it today. They can't get through it unless they're Homeric scholars. So I just simply decided I want to do some project that will put me back in touch with the Iliad for a few years. In Ilium, you get to create a complex, moving, and even scholarly novel that's still exciting and full of wonder. It, it's kind of mind-boggling just that you can manage to do that. Is this a true face of literature for the 21st century? Is this the first great literary work of the century? No, Ilium is not the first great literary <laughs> work. I don't know what will be, and we won't know, of course, until the dust settles. But it would be wonderful if Ilium were a small part of a large trend of sort of reintroducing the Robert Louis Stevenson side of the literary universe to the Henry James side where the two weren't, didn't act like they were antagonists. When, uh, when Robert Louis Stevenson died, he made William Je uh, Henry James, excuse me, his literary executor. His entire legacy was in the hands of somebody who's now considered as his literary antithesis. So I think there's going to be a wonderful rapprochement between well-plotted, well-told, exciting stories and very high-quality writing that may have a chance to survive. Now, how long will we have to wait for a sequel to Ilium? I know there's one planned. Uh, I wrote the first chapter before starting on this little book tour, so <laughs> I hope to get it to my publisher uh, next spring, which uh, might allow it to come out in 2004. But I never predict such things because, like the old mariners, you know, and the captains of the sailing <laughs> ships, I'm only bound for there. I don't know I'm going there. That's the same reason when I have interviews scheduled, I don't publish the fact that I'm going to put them on my website until after they're recorded. I very press the well. stop button. They're very wise. <laughs> now, how do you write about a future in which humanity has been transformed beyond recognition into something more alien than most aliens you see in current science fiction and render it comprehensible, readable, and enjoyable? Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? And that's the interesting thing. When you're writing about suburban adultery, you don't have quite that packet of challenges. <laughs> but of course, it's always the human heart in conflict with, with itself. That's always at the essence of any good story, even when the heart doesn't necessarily have to be human, as long as you play fair and show us what the feelings are there. And in this case, the human beings, uh, there are quite a variety of human beings. Some of them are very much like H.G. Wells's Eloy. And some of them are more like contemporary 20th century Americans. They are. And this uh, a few reviewers commented on this. This always is a decision to make when writing SF. Do you make connections, ironic or otherwise, with the culture and time you're writing in? Is that going to time bind you and make it just a period piece? But no, there are things about today that I want to comment on. I have gods that have evolved, possibly from humanity, these things that have evolved beyond all recognition, but there's a connection in their violence to September 11th. And these are things that will be commented on, either subtly or I hope, I hope not heavy-handedly, but the, the comment will be there in the books. In your mysteries, hard-boiled mysteries, hard case, hard freeze, and forthcoming hard as nails, how do you draw the line between violence that furthers the story and violence that's merely, merely titillation? All I can do is know my own 
motivation. And this is a series, a hard-boiled series, where the character is so tough, so hard-boiled that, you know, his mother wouldn't like him. So there's some outrageous violence in there. I'm not sure I'd go to the film version of it. I'd, <laughs> it wouldn't be my cup of tea. But if, if, when, you, when you know why you're writing something, it gives you an edge. When you know it's not just to uh, satisfy somebody's need to see violence, um, extreme violence, then at least you feel a little better about it. He's a violent character, and he lives in a violent world. He's a, actually a very scary guy. I, your protagonist in those novels is more frightening than many an antagonist in sleazy serial killer novels. Yes, when somebody's amoral, uh, it, it scares me, because the next step, of course, is to be a sociopath. He's not a killer. He doesn't steal his own band of ethics. He's not. He doesn't kill for any pleasure, but he never. there's no compunction. And that bothers me quite a bit. When my editor last year asked me to get into the mind of this character, Joe Kurtz, and, and show us, show the reader you know, how he ticks and why, I said, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> um, tell us about the Las Vegas theory of movie adaptations and your own take on movie adaptations and anything that's coming down the line. What's the Las Vegas theory? Uh, drive to Las Vegas, book oh, a room. Oh, and throw the, throw the manuscript over the, the boundary, California boundary, when, uh, yes, and the bundle of money comes back the other way? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, my theory is I love movies. My theory is novelists who think their movies will be adapted to the screen, translated like German to English, are fools. <laughs> because movies are their own thing. And I'm the only novelist I know. I'm a heretic because I have a whole list of movies that I think are better than the books they're based on. Share some of those titles with us. Well, sure, and I'm not going to diss the books, but take The Firm, mm -hmm. Grisham's early novel. It's really interesting, but the end absolutely breaks down and moving two-ton copiers up and down staircases. <laughs> <laughs> and the character has his wife do something that, you know, only a pimp would ask uh, one of his girls to do, and and it just sort of came apart. And and so uh, when Stanley, uh, Sidney Pollock did the film... He kept the parts that were interesting. The young couple tempted by so much money, even if he has to work for this law firm that you know so shady. But he straightened out the plot and made the ending exciting. I'm not trying to disparage the novel, but it was an early attempt by the novelist. Or there's Michael Ondaatje's Lyrical, The English Patient. Mm -hmm. I adored that book, and I handed it to strangers almost. But speaking to a good friend, a lifelong friend of Ondaatje in Toronto... He said, Michael's a wonderful poet, but he wouldn't know a plot if it hit him up the side of the head. <laughs> and so when they turned it into a film, which I happen to like quite a bit, the uh, filmmaker rewriting it kept what I considered the essence of the novel, the great beauty, and did things that a novel can't do, like sound overlap, you know, bringing back memories. You just can't do that well in a novel, but a film, it's possible. Those Suddenly it's a fingertip tapping a morphine syringe, cuts to uh, a Bedouin carrying... Uh, dozens of bottles on a yoke and they're all clattering against one another and that brings back the memory to the English English patient and yet he he, he got rid of the coincidences he fi fixed the pace so that it was it's a long movie but it worked and uh, it just got rid of things flashbacks that interrupted the narration so totally in the book so what I'm looking for if anybody ever adapts a Simmons novel I want to give it to somebody who can make a cinematic equivalent that I hope is better than my novel and when I've done a few screenplays based on my things, I've deconstructed my novels completely and started over to make a movie. Now, you have one that has been optioned. It's announced on your website. Yes, a formal announcement. Darren Aronofsky, the director in New Regency, uh, they've optioned uh, Song of Kali, my Calcutta, my first novel set in Calcutta. 
and Darren Aronofsky did Pie and Requiem for a Dream, which are very unsettling to me. So I can't imagine an unsettling director, you know, filming something in uh, Calcutta like that. It would make me nervous just the thought of it. What are you currently reading, if anything, and why? I'm on tour, but I brought this 20-pound historical book, uh, the new Gettysburg book by Stephen Sears, which is beautifully written. And I realized perhaps one of the reasons is I think uh, the Civil War was our version of the Iliad. And I'm probably getting ready for them wrestling with the next final volume in this uh, duology of Ilium and Olympos. And by reading Civil War history, I'm reminded of what an epic struggle is really like. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dan Simmons. His latest novel is Ilium.